Welcome to this week's episode of From Broadcast Depth, a retrospective podcast about the television series Lost. My name is Ben Lundy. With me, as always, is fellow island adventurer Kevin Ford. How you doing, Kevin? Ben, get me a bucket. Family-sized. <laughs> but yeah, stressful moments. You really could use an entire bucket of chicken, but uh, I, I don't know. that Maybe just watching these episodes today because excitement abounded for me. I don't know how you felt about them. We'll dive into them. I, I forgot how much I was getting into some of these later season six episodes. Well, you know, and it's fun. We're getting near the end here, so we're getting a lot of big payoff stuff, especially in your episode, and then uh, some reappearances, perhaps some final appearances of characters past that we yeah. haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, yeah, lots of stress, lots of reason for comfort food. So I'm anxious to get into these episodes, but first you had uh, something that you wanted to share as well. I did. I want to give a big thank you to one of our listeners from Ireland. I know the internet is ubiquitous, Ben, but it always amazes me when somebody from Ireland of all places is listening to our podcast. I think that's super cool. Yeah. So thank you, David, for your correspondence. He, he gave us a lot of love, which we really appreciate in his email. Uh, but he mentioned something about the numbers, which I thought was interesting enough to read on there. And I got his permission to do so. And he says, regarding the numbers, instead of there being a single explanation for them, I remember hearing a person's take on them, which I always found interesting. The numbers are more like the DNA of the lost universe, like the Fibonacci sequence in the real world. If the island was a painting, the numbers would be like the signature at the bottom. Uh, and I guess first thing is the Fibonacci sequence is essentially a, a mathematic sequence in which the sum of the two preceding numbers equal the one that comes after it. Um, you can look it up if you need a further explanation than that. But I kind of like that explanation of, of the numbers being like the DNA of the show, because a lot of times when they when they appear, it's not as if they're this magical mystery meaning like they are in the case of, uh, you know, the caves or the Valenzetti equation. But a lot of times they're just sort of fun throw ins that we like to point out in our number section here. So I like that explanation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do, too. I think that the numbers have always sort of functioned on two levels. There's a story relevance. And then there's also just this perspective that they're a fun thing for fans, you know, to see the numbers all over the place. They obviously, you know, figured out in the second season that fans were getting a kick out of finding the numbers, uh, you know, hidden, whether it was in a, you know, a series of soccer girls numbers uh, on their on their shirts or on top of some police cars. You know, so they just decided to go nuts throwing them in everywhere. And so, yeah, I mean, part of lost DNA, that's a great way to put it, because, I mean, that's one of the first things that people think about when they think of lost. You know, from my Facebook page that earlier this week, I put one of my typical Valentine's Day greetings, which is uh, roses are red, violets are blue, 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42. And the thing about it is that with no context at all, people still remember that and, you know, got a bunch of likes and people get a kick out of it and everything. So they definitely are part of the DNA of the show. And I think that regardless of whether you're someone who ultimately found the answer to the numbers satisfying, or if you felt like, ah, I was expecting it to be more, they're so indelibly associated with loss that they're just fun. And that's why even now in season six, we're still looking, looking out for them when we watch our episodes. Let's get into what we are here for this week. This being uh, some more episodes here in season six of Lost. I believe we're starting with episode 11 this week. Yes, this is episode 11. Season six, episode 11. Happily ever after. Day nine on the island. Like we get every now and then, there's actually no recap to this episode. Uh, so we just launch right into this. Kevin, I, I forgot how, I guess I wrote freaky in my notes. And I do, I would describe the first several minutes of this episode as freaky with this giant electromagnet thing they have and everything. But uh, I knew this was a turning point for the season. 
And that's true often of a lot of Desmond episodes. And we've Desmond's been gone for a while now on the show, hasn't he? We saw him in the very beginning and then poof. Yeah, and it's freaky. You get the you know, you get another appearance of White Rabbit, then you get another gentleman who goes into this box and is fried to death because of it. Right. So yeah, and and I say freaky is certainly what it was a great way to describe it. It reminds you of just sort of like a just like a horror scene, almost like a in like one of those like body transformation movies, like an alien or predator scene, something along those lines. Yeah, well, they set up the stakes right away. Of course, it you know makes sense from a writing perspective that you you show what happens to an average person when they get hit with this energy in this building they've constructed with these two giant. There's probably a more technical term for it, but I'm guessing there's some kind of some kind of coils that generate electromagnetic energy, right? Right. I guess rewinding a little bit, the point, the first thing that happens is Desmond wakes up in the Hydra station, and Widmore tells him he's brought it back to the island. Desmond does this little mouth twitch thing when he hears he's been brought back to the island because that's pretty much I would I would go so far as to say that is probably his worst nightmare come to life, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, I mean, how many times has he said I want nothing to do with the island? The whole last episode we saw with him was going to Eloise Hawking in the hopes of that this is my last thing I'll do and then I am done with the island for right. Good. And now right. he wakes up, no Penelope, no no son Charlie. Charles Widmore in his face and he is back on the island. It is all, everything he he doesn't want in his life and yeah. still wounded from the gunshot from, from Ben Linus. Yeah, this. still wounded. And then, uh, see, to me, the cherry on top is who is it who brought him back except Charles Widmore? Naturally. This man he could possibly not have any more reasons to hate. Well, Charles Widmore found another reason for Desmond to hate him. So Desmond attacks an old man with an IV uh, stand or whatever that thing is. I, I understand the reasoning, but I, I had to laugh a little bit at it because uh, he just grabs the nearest blunt object and starts beating Charles Widmore. So the whole team, of course, has to restrain him and everything. I did want to say, too, that I guess in the larger perspective of these, I guess, last episode and then this one, and don't forget, we've got kind of Jin along for the ride here, too. I really think it was a cool decision for them to have Charles Widmore and his team set up at the Hydra station. Obviously, part of it is the whole nostalgia trip thing of season six, and Hydra was a huge part of season three. But I think it also... It makes sense because it has like existing, it has existing power source. Widmore didn't have to build a bunch of temporary facilities when they got to the island. So I, I thought it was cool logistically too. Did you like seeing these sets again? I did like seeing the sets and I believe if I remember, for, and I'm sorry if I'm stealing a trivia note here, with the exception of Not in Portland, this is the only episode so far in the series that only has scenes off the island and on Hydra Island. There's no main island scenes in this episode at all. Yeah, I didn't have that written down, but that uh, that makes sense. It wouldn't be something that would happen very often. So, because not important was focused entirely on Sawyer and Kate escaping while uh, Jack did surgery, I guess, and all of that was on Hydra Island. So yeah, and so it's know. nice that they that the writers had the wherewithal to think, well, we already have all this infrastructure at Hydra Island, then so it would it would make sense for them to take up shop there and be able to execute some experiment of this magnitude because yeah. Hydra Island's already prepared for something like that. Yeah. So this one guy, this guy gets killed because they, somebody flips the switch on too fast. So we understand the stakes <laughs> when they throw Desmond in there. They kill a person rather than a rabbit. <laughs> I just, I just laugh. He's like, Oh, look, I know this, this breaker's on here. Let me just flip it on. Flip it on. Yeah. He's, he's not like, Hey, are we, are we all clear to, to flip this on here? Just want to make sure before I do this. Right, right. Well, the thing I get a kick out of it, there's this phenomenon that I think you're you're familiar with and we all sort of uh, have experienced is that 
for whatever reason the human brain works this way, it seems like we prefer to see humans being harmed in things rather than animals. Like even if it's something entirely fictional, like a television show, the best example, of course, is the Independence Day scene where the dog jumps out of the way of the explosion. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So this is like this kind of classic thing where, oh, you know, the audience is so happy that the dog survived getting away from the aliens. Meanwhile, millions of people have been barbecued <laughs> in these right. major cities. So I honestly think it was funny that they were going to use the rabbit as the experiment. Um, but that probably would have the, the audience would have probably actually not liked that, whereas getting an actual human killed was easier, an easier pill to swallow. <laughs> but regardless, uh, it's obviously what they're doing in here is dangerous, and Widmore doesn't take the time to explain anything to Desmond. He just throws them in there. Of course, he has to go ahead and switch on the stuff himself, because I guess one of his grunts is having some reluctance of throwing the switch, knowing there's a person in there. And I mean, I guess that's reflective of of the way Widmore is acting overall, because he's kind of just treating Desmond like a tool, you know? Right. Not really like a human being. And and so then we get this scene where he gets hit with the electromagnetic radiation. It, some of it visually is familiar to with stuff we've seen before, because we've seen Desmond get hit with the Swan Station electromagnetic energy all the way back in season two. But this actually kind of brought up a question for me that I hadn't even really thought about until this viewing, which is that, Widmore says that Desmond's the only person ever to survive a major electromagnetic event, and his purpose of doing this is to make sure that he could survive another. Now, I think up until then, I at least was assuming that everything Desmond went through afterwards, which was like his time travel, being the only person who can alter the course of history and so forth, was because of the electromagnetic energy he absorbed because of the hatch explosion. But Widmore makes it sound like he was kind of special before the hatch explosion am i splitting hairs or does that that seems like contradictory to me yes because i mean would one not consider everybody who went through the hydrogen bomb explosion also mm -hmm. to have i guess maybe because that splits timelines mm -hmm. in a weird way it's not the same thing as desmond who went through the event and then stayed in the same time period he also doesn't have physical time displacement he has mental time displacement yeah. so maybe there's that difference there too right but i think you bring up a valid point because i mean in, in one case though like he was it looked like he was going to get killed uh when he was doing in the constant when he was going back and forth between time periods mentally we saw that other people had died uh because of that phenomenon and the and he was not saved because he was special in that instance he was saved because he was able to reach out and make contact with Penny by phone. So it just kind of makes me wonder where he's it, it, kind of in the Walter Hurley vein of having a special ability innately versus he's able to do this because he got hit with a blast before. Like, has he become one with the island because of all this electromagnetic energy? Something like that. Um, but it's I don't know that we'll really get a concrete answer to that. Uh, uh, but Widmore puts it out there. But ultimately... He gets zapped. We have we feel shades of like flashes before your eyes here structurally with this episode as soon as this starts because in that episode, if you'll recall, all the way back in season three, we saw the him turn the key and release the electromagnetic energy, and then all of a sudden he was in the past. Now this time, instead, he finds himself in the other reality, except the big difference being that this Desmond does not remember the island, at least not right away. And, and we actually jump right into a mirror reflection thing. Uh, they didn't waste any time in, in getting to that visual symbolism that we've seen all season. 
And so this Desmond now is back at the, this is right after flight 815, lands in LAX, and he's waiting for his, um, uh, his baggage to come up. And he meets Claire and I guess kind of weirdly offers her a ride, total stranger. But I don't know, did you pick this? Did you think this was like just weird or was it maybe a hint that he senses that he knows her or, or what? Because they have like this whole conversation being complete strangers at the airport. Right. It's it's a weird conversation just by the optics of it. An older mm-hmm. man talking to a younger pregnant woman offering her ride and all that stuff. Yeah. I didn't sense anything of it, but. You know, I think Claire did the right thing in saying, like, I'm okay, dude. I'll yeah, just take I'm a good. cab. <laughs> I'll just take a cab and, you know, get hijacked by another stranger and then let her drive me around. How about that? Also thought it was really weird when, when she said she didn't know the, the gender of the baby. She's trying to keep it a secret. And as they walk away, it's just like, it's a boy. Like, dude, you're a stranger. That's a weird thing to just say to a person as you're parting words. But it's a boy. I think he was he thought he was trying to be cute. Right, uh, just like showing interest in her or or, or something, but uh, right. but his prediction is correct. So, uh, how much of this is you know fate versus just conversation is I guess up for debate. But or uh, just a fun quip to throw in there. Yeah, fun little like, quip ah. to throw in there. I guess I do feel like Claire's relevance comes back into play a little later in the episode because she's spoken of in this episode, even if we don't see her as much, uh, at least, you know, in the sideways timeline. But then we get another big return, almost hard to recognize a little bit because he's clean shaven or he's cleaner shaven and and, and uh, nicely dressed and everything. But we get George Minkowski from the freighter when it was only in a couple episodes, but uh, he was sort of in Desmond's uh, radius, I guess, when, when uh, he came into the story. So I think with these uh, with, with these guest appearances and these returns of the characters, they it seems like they try to put them in places for the most part where it makes sense in terms of the characters they were connected to before. So this probably makes sense that this was Desmond's driver, you know? Yeah, it's where they have someone it, like it would be weird if Minkowski was interacting with like I don't know Jin in the Flash Sideways because right. they just really never had any interaction at all if not any no meaningful interaction so yeah, yeah. It's, it's always fun to see so fisher stevens too. yeah and then also like in another thing too is sort of like what their occupation is versus you know when in, in the original timeline because i think he was wasn't he involved in the was he their communicator or something i think on the on the freighter or was he in the engineering room uh he well he was the uh, yeah he was the cra- obviously the crazy guy on the he freighter. was the one that kept saying nobody talked to him over the radio. Uh, it says he was he, from Las Pati. He was responsible for maintaining contact via satellite phone with his colleagues on the island and okay. with the outside world. Okay. Well, he's kind of an information guy here because he starts right away with uh, telling Desmond, you can get you what you want, anything you need. That thread runs through to the end of the episode. But I did get a kick about the, the fact that the, the first thing out of his mouth that he offers Desmond when Desmond gets in the car is to hook him up with prostitutes. I don't know. I mean, it's, I've never ridden a limo, but I, I'm assuming the first thing you don't usually get is, hey, welcome to Los Angeles. Would you like me to set you up with a hooker? Well, you know, the, he is a businessman. There's, the, there's that, uh, that reputation you get from media and stuff that high-powered people sometimes have this this hookup and who knows maybe maybe minkowski is in a little bit on the back end too from whomever is maybe prostituting out these women i don't know yeah i mean that sets in motion i guess a theme of the flash sideways over desmond's flash sideways here which is that like he is, seems happy on the surface but he doesn't have a special someone in his life but the big bombshell is you know when desmond is single has no relationship with penny uh, in the flash sideways 
but he works for Widmore and they like each other enough to give each other a big bro hug when he comes into the office. Uh, so that's a nice 180. And, you know, like a lot of the Flash sideways, you see the circumstances sort of flipped. I think that the biggest thing symbolically with that is that they both gulp down some McCutcheon whiskey together and you don't get a more symbolic representation of, hey, things are exactly the opposite in this reality because that that diss from Widmore still stings after like three seasons later, you know? Yeah. And this timeline, I guess he is worthy of sipping 60 year old McCutcheon's whiskey with him. Worthy of his whiskey. So maybe worthy of his daughter. I don't know. (laughs) There's a couple other things in Widmore's office here. Did you pick up a couple of the visuals? No, lay them on me. Okay. So, well, in the previous, I think it was in season three when uh, Desmond had his scene in Widmore's office, there was a painting and a lot of the paintings on the show, of course, the most famous probably being the the painting uh, in the swan hatch on the wall were done by Jack Bender, one of the most prolific directors of the show. And uh, there was one in his office in season three that had a polar bear on it and it said, Namaste. This is pretty obvious symbolism. It is actually the justice scale thing with a black rock in one side and a white rock in another, just hanging out in the background. And then the other thing I thought, though, is that he's looking at when Widmore comes in, he's looking at uh, a ship, a little ship that looks like uh, kind of made me think of anyway of like the Elizabeth, like a sailing ship sort of uh, alluding back to the solo race around the world that was Desmond's original purpose uh, that ended him up on the island. So these are definitely shout outs to to previous interactions that uh, that Desmond's had with Widmore. But Desmond gets his mission here. His mission is to look after a junkie bass player of a very familiar band. Of course, we know he's talking about Charlie. So I don't know when you watch this episode, I don't, I don't know about you, but I was like, oh my gosh, are we about to get more Charlie? Because um, you know, they even teased it a little bit a couple episodes where they had Liam in Sawyer's episode. You remember that? Yeah, when he's in the precinct trying to figure out more about his brother. Right. right. So all this stuff is overlapping. So the idea is that there's going to be a concert where Widmore's son, who is a musician, and we've already probably got in our heads who we're talking about there, is uh, is having a concert where they're mixing classical music with rock music, kind of this kind of experimental deal. And it's very important that this bass guitarist uh, get to the performance, despite the fact that he smuggled drugs onto a plane and ended up in jail as a result of it. Um, so Desmond is going to be Charlie's babysitter. And I was just kind of flipping out when I realized we were probably about to get to see Charlie. But a lot going on here. Uh, we see another reflection, actually, as Desmond walks up towards the glass door of the police station. So Desmond gets two. But uh, the big thing here is we get Desmond and Charlie together again. And Dominic Monaghan making another return to Lost. He was in that first episode, but didn't have really a huge role there. But uh, a real good chunk of screen time in this one. How'd you feel about seeing uh, Charlie back? I mean, I felt good about seeing him, but did not feel great about him just walking into oncoming traffic. <laughs> right into a bar, you know? Right. Well, I mean, that that connects to what he was saying, I guess, on the plane, which is that I was supposed to die. You know, he mm. seems to not care. But Desmond and Charlie end up in a bar together. Uh, this is definitely season one, Charlie, addict, very rugged, devil may care. Like you said, just walks into oncoming traffic. But he tells Desmond that the reason he's feeling this way is because when he almost choked to death on his heroin on the plane, he saw this vision and in his particular instance it was this vision of a blonde woman of course we know who he's talking about and more importantly to us he says that he and this woman were all were already together and always would be 
is Charlie also going back and forth between the realities? This kind of opens up the the possibility, I guess. What were your impressions on what he was describing? Like, is he describing some kind of knowledge of the other reality? What, what we're seeing is these moments in in people's existences that allow them the, their world to be opened up to that alternate timeline on the island and choking right. to death was Charlie. So I do think he's seeing his island life with Claire, and that's what he's describing to Desmond. That's sort of the crux of this episode. I think that's actually, if you had to, to, to distill this episode down to sort of the most important thing that we get from it, is we get the beginning of these scenes, and it's not a spoiler to say it's the beginning because we get some more in the very next episode, which you're about to talk about, Right. where these folks in the sideways reality will see a vision of their life in the other reality. And so some memories are coming back to them. And uh, that's what Charlie basically describes here. But we get to see it firsthand in the, a couple of scenes here. After the bar, Charlie decides to uh, take matters into his own hands, literally. And he grabs, he's driving with Desmond. He grabs the steering wheel, drives them into the water. Uh, looks like, you know, at the uh, by the bay or something. And this scene was awesome to me because he sets it up in such a way that when Desmond comes around to try to get Charlie out of the car, he puts his hand up on the glass window, you know, and so we get a direct mirroring of the classic not Penny's boat scene. I thought this was awesome. Me too. Do you think that Charlie saw that when he was choking and that's why he did that to maybe try to trigger something in Desmond? You mean, did he know exactly what he would see or that he just wanted him to sort of have a kind of awakening like he had? Right. So, yes. So I think in his, when he choked, in addition to seeing a blonde woman, he probably saw him, he probably saw Desmond. He saw himself die in the not Penny's boat moment. And so he thinks, okay, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to recreate that the best I can. Let's get us underwater in this car. Let's let me stay in the, in the car while he's outside of it. So I can press my hand against the car window and maybe that'll get him to see what I saw too. That would really be giving him a lot of credit as far as sort of the extent to which he could prognosticate. I'm sure. not saying it's impossible, but I definitely think that he he felt that by doing all that, that he would, that sort of scenario, that sort of near-death scenario, which was what he went through on the airplane, would force Desmond to maybe live uh, or witness scenes from another reality just as charlie had done right and if he Um, and if it doesn't work and he dies what has he got to lose if he's meant to die anyway yeah so desmond experiences this and this is something different because we've we've had a couple scenes in the sideways so far where like characters had circumstances similar to the other reality like uh you know claire being there with kate and ethan when she was you know going into or I guess uh, she was having contractions. They decided to delay the pregnancy, but or the the birth, you know. So similar type circumstances, but this is the first time we're almost sort of getting like a perspe- a new a new level of this, where they're literally seeing like how this scene mirrors what has happened to them in another reality. So so obviously this messes with uh, Desmond quite a bit. They're at the hospital uh, after this whole scene, you know, after they get out of the car and everything, and they give Desmond an MRI. And that, of course, leads immediately to more flashes. So Desmond and your flashes, um, just to kind of, that's his thing. Well, it also Um, makes sense that an MRI, which also has a lot of electromagnetism, would be something that sets off these images too. Exactly. Like anytime you put this guy in some device that's going to bombard him with some electromagnetic shit, this is what's going to happen. Did you pick up, there's a quick joke about a button here too, Uh where he's like, here, I'm going to give you the button. And he's like, button? (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> to push, which he does rapidly once he starts freaking out uh, about seeing all these images. But I think most importantly here, he sees Penny, which in this reality, he has no idea who she is. So I guess uh, however strong Desmond and Widmore's business relationship might be in this reality, they don't have a personal relationship to the extent that he's met Widmore's daughter. We get a quick Jack appearance. Nice to always get those little overlaps uh, where he gives, uh, they actually recognize each other from the plane. And then he gives Desmond some direction, but Je Desmond has to chase down Charlie again because Charlie's still going nuts, which I think is fun because I guess I go back to like season one, Charlie, and when I was like really... I, I liked the character and was really into his story arc before before he reached a point where like his story arc started to feel repetitive, if that makes sense. And he was just kind of a little more kooky of a character when he would like sing while they were walking through the forest and stuff like that. And this is kind of a kooky Charlie. And I feel like, I don't know, I get the impression that Dominic Monaghan's kind of having fun stepping into these shoes again. Oh, know? yeah. And, and just the idea that, I'm sure when Desmond gets the assignment, like, I just got to keep my eyes on this guy and make sure he doesn't do anything crazy. Like, how hard can that be? We'll just go back to his hotel room and we'll just sit around and that'll be <laughs> <Right>. that. <laughs> Not exactly. Right. Yeah. So he's chasing him through the hospital and everything. And Charlie figures out that Desmond is sensing something. So, you know, it worked. Desmond asks about Penny. So actually, it's, I guess, two sort of separate things. Like, he sees this woman in the one vision of the MRI, but he also saw the vision of the word not Penny's boat on Charlie's hand. So that's what makes him, I think, I mean, am I interpreting that right? That's why he asked specifically about Penny. Yeah, He absolutely. didn't have the name Penny pop into his head. Yeah, but he saw it on the hand. So, but yeah, so Charlie's like, yeah, this is working, but he takes off again. Widmore gets pissed at Desmond for this because I think Widmore more than anything sounds like he fears the wrath of his wife um, for the possibility that this benefit concert might get messed up that she's orchestrating if, if drive shaft doesn't have their basis. So he's like, Oh, guess what, Desmond, you get to go tell my wife this bad, this bad news that drive shaft won't be able to play at the con concert. Uh, and of course, uh, it's not too hard to predict who this wife is going to be. I guess there was an outside possibility. It could have been whoever Penny, uh, Penny's mother was because, uh, she's the half sister of uh, Daniel Faraday, but that kind of would have been a narrative dead end. Obviously, we want to see people that we already know because it kind of deepens the mystery. So, of course, this is Eloise Hawking in another kind of freaky ass Eloise Hawking scene where she knows she seems to know way more than she should. Initially, she's super nice to Desmond and she's like, oh, it's no big deal to try, you know, like understand these things happen. And he seems nice. She seems nice. And like George Minkowski has built this woman up as like the devil yeah. in, in Desmond's mind, but she's being super nice. But then she overhears him asking one of the other, I guess, people working there was like reading off a list of performers and he hears the name Penny. Like the guest asks, list, I think it was. Oh, the oh, a guest list. Okay. Yeah, because I think it was like people who are like arranging the table seatings and stuff because okay. they said, uh, what, what's, what's her last name in this timeline? Uh, that I don't remember because I because what, what I remember is we get to see Daniel but he, he's Daniel uh Widmore in this Daniel, timeline Daniel Widmore, so right. the fun thing about this timeline is in in the timeline we know on the island 
Penny has the last name Widmore and Daniel goes by Faraday, but in this timeline, he's using Widmore and she is not using the name. Oh, really? Her name's Widmore. Faraday in this reality? No, it's not Faraday, but it's oh, not Widmore. It's not it's Widmore. Okay. okay. So, yeah, so I think they're reading off the list because they say, Got like, it. you know, Penny, last name, and then she's alone. Like, she doesn't have a, a yeah. plus one or something well, like that. Well, it perks it perks Desmond up because he's, you know, he knows this name, Penny. But but then this, this initiates this confrontation with Eloise because she figures out what he's asking about. And then she kind of turns uh, fire and brimstone on him because basically she knows that he is aware of something he shouldn't be aware of. And she tells him, whatever you're doing, stop doing it. Stop looking for whatever you're looking for. Pretty much beyond a shadow of a doubt, this tells me that Eloise knows what's up a lot more than like any of the characters that we've seen in the Sideways universe so far. He's like, how do you know all this? And she's like, well, I bloody do. Very much reminiscent of their very first encounter all the way back in season three when she starts off just seem it's the first time we ever saw her. And she seems like just a nice old lady in a uh, jewelry store. And then as soon as he does something that she doesn't expect him to do, she flips out and ends up having a big conversation with him about how he shouldn't be trying to change history. Likewise here, he shouldn't be looking for answers according to her because, um, and, and I think what she ends up saying is that he's not ready yet. Right. It stands to reason too. She would be the one who knows more than anybody else. In sure. This sure. Absolutely. By the way, Milton is the, t- is the last name of Penny in this time. Milton. Okay. We transition to the next scene, which is, uh, I, I guess this is kind of cool because if you're not paying close attention, you miss it, but they give a couple of um, like, even with an establishing shot of this scene, you see the piano player like over in a corner, but you don't like, they don't show his face or anything. But of course, the next time they show him, you, you realize it's going to be Daniel. So we get another scene with Daniel and Desmond who have also had, you know, some interactions, fair number of interactions uh, on the Island timeline. So he reveals himself. And like you said, he's Daniel Widmore. And this Daniel has been able to realize his dream. So in this reality, again, the road not taken, sort of the opposite uh, or reversal of fortune, he was able to pursue his goal of being a musician. Apparently, he's a brilliant and talented musician because none of this other stuff happened where, you know, he was destined to die on the island and all that stuff. So that's kind of nice. I guess he seems a little more level headed. He's still kooky and he immediately launches into his crazy conspiracy theory about changing reality. But I don't know. He seems a little more level headed to me than, than the Daniel we knew. And one who likes to wear silly looking hats. I wanted to see if you were wanting to make a comment on the hat. Yeah. I think that's a choice by the actor. Cause I think he wore that hat on like Jimmy Kimmel or something. Did too. He? I don't know why he's trying to make that hat happen. Wouldn't surprise me. I don't, I, I have a, I have a hard time coming up with a descriptor for that. Other than that, like, it almost seems like a trying too hard to be cool. I don't know. Is that it's, fair? Or? It's something that I think somebody of, of Daniel Widmore's disposition would think is cool and looks good. This is super cool for me to wear this hat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Faraday sits down with Desmond, immediately starts talking, uh, actually starts talking like Charlie because he kind of has this twoo love as well. It's like a sickness with these people, but like he's uh, he's talking now. He's talking about this woman with like uh, you know amazing blue eyes and red hair, and of course we know who he's talking about. And this venue, I guess I don't think I mentioned it before, but the venue for this is outside of the of the museum. This is a benefit concert for the museum, and putting all the pieces together for all these ways that these characters are interconnected. 
obviously we're talking about the same museum where Charlotte works. So he saw her, you know, he immediately felt this connection. He had a dream and then he wrote a bunch of equations that he shouldn't know how to do because they're like super advanced astrophysics equations or temporal mechanics, stuff like that. He's kind of even closer to the truth than Charlie is actually, because he says he thinks that their lives are not what they're supposed to be and that it was caused by the setting off of a bomb, a nuclear bomb. So this is sounding very familiar. And on top of all that, he knows where Desmond can find Penny, who, by the way, is his half-sister. This goes back to all that family tree stuff we did last season where we were talking about who's related to whom and everything. I forgot that all of it sort of came out, came to bear in this episode. Did you call this where Desmond would find Penny? When Daniel said, I know where you can find her, that's I had a feeling that's where he would send her. I, I didn't call it. I'm, I'm kind of bad at predicting stuff like that. But then as soon as you see it, it makes perfect sense, of course. Well, before we, before we do move on to that, did you yeah. notice the line that... Daniel said about how he saw this uh, this redheaded woman eating a chocolate bar in the museum. No, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I must that, have missed it eating a chocolate right. bar. And so, you know, that calls back to when she before she died, she like reverted back to her little kid self mm-hmm. being like, oh, I'm, I'm not allowed to have chocolate before dinner. And then I think when he saw her again as a little kid on the swing set, she was eating a chocolate bar. Yep. yep. So, yeah. So I thought that was a cute little line to put in here. So I guess the real question, the real mystery that this episode doesn't solve is, was she eating the chocolate before dinner in this reality? Well, now she's a grown ass woman and nobody's going to tell her when she can eat a chocolate bar. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's possible. I had some chocolate yesterday because it's like post, uh, you know, post Valentine's Day when they try to clear out all the leftover uh, junk food. I've been meaning to try to find those molten chocolate, molten lava cake, like chocolate Hershey's Kisses. And I keep forgetting to look for when I go to the store. I heard they're delicious. <laughs> OK, so anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so we get the the new meet cute between Desmond and Penelope, and it is at the stadium where Desmond uh, was running the very first time he met Jack. It is also the place where he and Penelope had a very important conversation before he left on his solo race around the world. So she knew that he, she would find him there back in, in the island reality. So he introduces himself. Uh, again, one of these scenes where I feel like she's probably not as creeped out as she should be yes. um, in this situation. But maybe you maybe you give it a little bit of leeway in the sense that like if all these characters are sort of having these, even if they're not having outright visions yet, like have happened to Charlie and Desmond at this time that they're still having some vague impressions of familiarity with somebody. And I like that happened between Jack and Desmond in the very first episode, you know, he looked at him, he stared at him for several seconds. And there was the whole, are you okay? He's like, do I know you from somewhere? Obviously we know where they know each other from. We can write it off as that because normally I would think a woman running by herself and a dude walks up to her and starts like, giving her the googly eyes and this would just be a creepy situation. Um, but she doesn't handle it that way. They shake hands and uh, agree to have coffee. And then immediately after that, I think he falls or something. Doesn't he trip and fall down? He, or, or no, yeah. that happens. That's when he wakes up back on the island. So yeah, when they, so the, his moment is sh- when they shake hands, he passes out in the stadium. That's, that's when right. his consciousness returns him to the island. Yes. Okay. So he returns. So he wakes up on the island. This is my interpretation of this. Tell me what you think is that whereas when Desmond got hit with the electromagnetic energy and then, you know, uh, we flashed over to the sideways reality where we spent most of this episode. Now he's waking up and this island Desmond 
does have the memories of the sideways reality. Yes, correct. Seems, okay. All right. Because that's why I think he says to, when when Charles is trying to explain to him, he basically says, no further explanation needed. I'm on board with whatever you, you got. And I yeah. think it's because the flash sideways stuff is now imprinted in his brain. He He's seen this other side, even if he's not 100% sure of it, he's somehow understands its significance and he understands that whatever's going on he needs to participate in like there's a reason all this is happening it, it makes sense to him somehow and so this is kind of like zen desmond because he literally just is like okay chuck what we got to do you know like it's it, it's complete reversal of what he was what was going on before but of course that doesn't last too long or i guess it doesn't do doesn't do charles widmore any good because within a couple minutes of him uh coming out of this uh flash he's walking away with some of uh of widmore's flunkies and uh Said attacks, uh, kills a few of them with some instant uh, neck twist uh, action, and then tells Zoe to run. And then uh, Said basically he says these people are dangerous and uh, wants to take Desmond away with him. And Desmond's like, "Sure, let's go for it." And Desmond's completely willing and walking off with Said. So, what do you think's going on in Desmond's head here, where he's just sort of like? One minute he wants to work with Widmore. The next minute when Saeed kills Widmore's people and says, come with me, he's cool with that too. I and I mean, I may be giving him too much credit, but I think he thought, I'm going to go with him and, may, and see what's going on here. And I can either act as a double agent to see what's going on with them and report back to Widmore. And, but I think he also wants to be on the inside of what's going on there in case it is disruptive to what he's hoping to accomplish. Hmm. I had a little bit of a different interpretation. I, my feeling with Desmond is that uh, he is so confident in that what he has seen and how the importance of it, I guess, that he is confident that things are going to unfold how they should. And so he is just kind of, he is very much like just going with the flow. No matter what happens, I think he, I think he believes that he's going to end up where he needs to be when he needs to be there. So whether... You know, we've we've got these warring factions. We had the great, uh, you know, line last time of oh, someone said a war was coming. I think it just got here. You know, we've got Widmore and we've got the Man in Black, and they're both vying for power. You know, they're kidnapping each other's people. They're spying on each other, and every all of our characters that we care about so much are just sort of caught up in the middle of all this. I think I feel like Desmond is in a place where he's feeling, you know, what? No matter where I go, who I go with, you know, like path of least resistance because. I'm so sure of what I've seen and I'm so, so sure of my purpose that I'll be where I need to be when I need to be there. He's just kind of having faith in the universe. In other words, Interesting. That, he just, it just, he seems so Zen and it even continues into the next episode too, where he's, he's like completely unafraid of the man in black. And that's that sort true. Of thing. So, <laughs> almost to his detriment. <laughs> almost to his detriment. We'll get there. <laughs> So, so this is Desmond now. You know, he's back on the island, but he's got this. He's got this new attitude uh, as a result of having, um, you know, seen this vision of the other reality that we've been privy to for for this season. And now he's being led off by Saeed to join uh, up with the Man in Black. And then the last scene we get is we take one trip back to the sideways reality, and and then it appears that this Desmond has had a bit of an awakening as well. He agrees to coffee with Penelope, and then when he gets back in the car with Minkowski, 
He asked Minkowski if he can get a copy of the passenger list of Flight 815. Now, I don't know how a limo driver is supposed to get that, but I guess we're supposed to understand that Minkowski's a guy with connections. He can hook you up with some prostitutes, but he can also get flight manifests. Exactly. He's a guy. He can get you what you need no matter what. <laughs> get you what you need. And so he says he wants to show them something. And boom, lost, and we are off to the races because that, to me, was a game-changer episode for the season. Heck, yeah, what it was. <laughs> it, we're, we're shifting gears now into, yeah. like, almost second, if not a little bit into third year as we're racing towards the end of the series as to how we're going to wrap this thing in a bow. Yeah, it kickstarts the latter half of the season. I Like you say, it shifts gears, another metaphor. I, I think if a couple of the flash sideways that we had so far seemed underwhelming, I think particularly you and I felt that way about the Saeed and the Sun and Jin ones as a little underwhelming, that that kind of becomes water in the bridge at this point because now we understand that there's a very clear end goal in sight for this. You know, something, there's forward movement now towards some kind of end game with this flash sideways reality and all the, and the, the characters just keep getting even more interconnected because now you've got characters that aren't just the main eight fifteen passengers, but you've got, you know, Charlotte and Daniel and Eloise and everybody like sort of all kinds of appearances. And then even great returns for like, you know, Dominic Monaghan, like one of the most beloved characters on the show. A lot of people were really upset when he got killed in season three, making a return appearance here. I also think it's always it's always just really impressive to me when they get actors back for just a couple episodes, you know, here and there, because they're having to fly those people in from, you know, to Hawaii. You know, it's not like they just drive to a different sound stage, sound stage in L.A. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So no, they, they go to great expense to have these cameos. It, it has got to be very expensive to get somebody like Dominic Monaghan to come back to Hawaii to do a couple episodes of Lost. So that's great. And that shows a lot of commitment on the part of. I guess the budget that they allowed them to achieve that. And then also the willingness of the actor to come back just to do a couple episodes. So it's pretty cool. Any other notes or things you wanted to mention before we do our superlatives? This is something really cool. I read on Lostpedia that I had no idea about, but I thought it was a really cool thing where Penny says to Desmond to meet her in a coffee shop on the corner of Melrose and sweets or in Los Angeles. In real life, there is no coffee shop on that street corner, but there is an antique shop called Thanks for the Memories. <laughs> so that's really funny to me. That is funny. That's there, There's so many like things in there where you have to wonder, you know, did they, I guess they, they had to have known that. That couldn't be coincidence, right? No, there's no way they didn't just choose that out of a hat. I yeah, yeah, that's really something. <laughs> it's just funny to me while it's still season six and – Whenever there's a Desmond episode, people are like, "Ooh, some shit's gonna go down now," you know. Like <laughs> it's, it's one of those, one of those characters where you just—he's uh, still a game changer after all this time, and uh, you know, it just it, it brings back a lot of memories because uh, you know, all the way back to season two, the finale where. I mean, back then, that season two finale was actually a really big kind of gamble on their part in the sense that they they made the main character of their season two finale somebody who wasn't right. One of the regular cast members, you know, then they made him a regular the next season and everything, but he's such a beloved character. And then to also kind of constantly be sort of bringing him back, but not like artificially, like the fact that he wasn't in the first eight episodes of this season, that's a big, or got me, more, more like 10 episodes. You know, that's a big gap for the actor to not be on a show, but he's still considered a regular and they didn't sort of force him into it artificially. I like the writing in this episode and, and, you know, for Desmond's sort of 
last hurrah in the spotlight, you know, as, as a, as a centric character for an episode, I think they really, they really did it well. Yeah. And I think it makes all the sense in the world to me that people would get excited over a Desmond episode one, because the constant is such a high watermark for most lost fans, if not yeah. the best episode period. Yeah. But I think he also checks off all the boxes, no matter what kind of lost fan, if you are, do you like the character stuff and relationships or do you like the mystery stuff? He gives you all of it when you get right. a Desmond episode. So yeah, yeah, and this is just and and I mean, if you go back and look at Desmond centric episodes, I don't think there's a single bad one in the bunch. Right, there really isn't. I think even probably even people's probably least favorite one, which was Catch Twenty Two, because it was probably the closest to like a normal kind of flashback episode uh, that Desmond has had. Even that one still had some great stuff in it because it the flashback had the first time he met Penelope. And then they had the whole thing where, you know, he was predicting seeing, you know, someone parachute onto the island, which at the time was like a huge deal. The idea of somebody new coming to the island in season three, that was like a major like upheaval. You know, now it's like, oh, yeah, some more people in a freighter. Bring them on. Yeah. But uh, but back then that was a big deal. Yeah. I want to do some superlatives. Let's do it. All right. What you got for your quote of the episode? My quote comes from Daniel Faraday, or I guess Daniel Whitmore in this timeline, where when he's talking to Desmond, he says, I don't want to set off an atomic bomb, Desmond. I think I already have. <laughs> Boy, and the other thing is, you know, people were so sort of just like going back and forth of like, what's the nature of the relationship between these two realities right now? And the fact that he remembers, of course, he actually didn't do it himself, but uh, he, he sort of set in motion the sequence of events that led to it, I guess. Right. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but he remembers mine was Eloise just saying, whatever you think it is you're looking for, you need to stop looking for it. I just love the way she delivered that to Desmond because it so reminded me of the scene where she has like a very similar conversation with him all the way back in season three and the consistency of that character interaction between those two characters was really cool to me because I, I just think uh, Eloise to me was sort of a surprise how much I ended up liking her character over the years because she sort of made that one appearance and then everybody wanted to know more about her. And then they decided to make her like a huge part of season five, you know, like I, and I'm not even season five's biggest fan, but I feel like her character was, you know, a bright spot in that whole thing because you got to learn about why she understood all that stuff. And then now sort of you got the same thing going on in the sideways reality, in other words. So I, I like that line delivery. What was your favorite moment of the episode? Mine was when the car crashed into the water and Desmond remembering not Penny's boat, both from the significance of the scene, but also the way it was shot where you see the back of their heads in the car. Like there's a camera like mounted on the back window or something. Yeah. So you see the car careen off, go into the water and then it goes underwater. You see all the water crashing and flooding through their windows into it. Just from a visual perspective, that was such a cool scene to watch. That was a great scene. Uh, I feel like all the scenes where people started seeing visions sort of stood out. So like also him in the MRI machine. And then also at the end when he shakes Penny's hand. I think feel like those would probably be like a three-way tie for me of all these when he starts seeing the scenes. because and Partly too, I think, is because they... I'm not sure to what extent they gave Henry and Cusick specific direction as to how to react to that. But I felt that his reactions in those scenes were sort of like appropriately, they weren't over the top. Like they weren't like he started freaking out immediately. Like he did in the MRI machine because I think he was, 
you kind of couple that with being in an enclosed space that kind of people are kind of already afraid of anyway. Yeah. But like it was sort of building on itself. But like when you cut back and forth to him seeing it, you really feel like he's seeing it and then he's having this hard time processing like what am I experiencing right now? Um, so I thought all those, all those scenes were really good. Who is your asshole idiot of the episode? Well, this has to do with something you just brought up. Okay. Now, uh, a couple of years ago, I've, I had my own health problems. And I'll tell you, I've done CAT scans. I've done PET scans. I've done x-rays. There is no way on, on earth that the administrator of these tests would have just let me get up and run away if I didn't <laughs> like that, like the experience of these. There's no way. And yeah. Desmond just gets to run out in his civilian clothes after escaping this MRI exam <laughs> and chases after Charlie. So really, and, so they would have strapped you down and kept you there, you think? Well, it depends on what it is. They may have just said, all right, we'll try this again later or something else, but there's no way they would have just let me go back in, into the normal world and come back the next day or whatever. I don't think, especially after like a, a, a incident that he went through with a car crash into the ocean. Absolutely yeah. insane. And if they did, then boy, what a hospital this is. Or they'd probably send somebody to like, they'd send the police or something like to, to, to his house or something. I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're, so your asshole idiot is specifically the guy who was doing the MRI or the hospital staff in general. Let's get, I, well, I said the MRI administrator, but sure, the staff too for just letting this guy. I mean, I guess you could say that they had bigger fish to fry with Charlie running away. <laughs> right. But <laughs> still, the, <laughs> the fact that this ended with the two of them just being able to leave on their own accord is bonkers to me. <laughs> I've seen people who tried to escape the hospital quartered in elevators with the police. Really? Oh, yes. This, this apparently is a phenomenon. So, okay. yeah, there's no way this would have happened, but plot <laughs> armor. My asshole idiot I gave to the guy that gets killed in the electromagnet room because he had a good several seconds when like if you're in a room like that and you know what is about to happen or like, you know, you know what the room is for and you're just kind of hanging out there and they're checking it out. Like I know, like, first of all, you'd be nervous going in and I'm sure the guy was, but like from the second that thing starts to hum, you bust your ass out of there. And, and there was a good four or five seconds where he's just kind of standing there before it really starts to hit him to the extent that he obviously isn't capable of, of like getting out of the room. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you think he had the time to escape and he was just like, huh, what's happening? I think he had like a good four or five seconds of reaction time where uh, he could have turned around and booked it out of that room. But no, he decided to stay there and get cooked. But he was sacrificing himself for the rabbit's sake is, is kind of how I'm choosing to look at it because we didn't have to see an animal get killed because uh, that would be worse for us. So that was my asshole idiot. Got numbers. I, I have one, which is that Flight 815's baggage claim was Carousel 4, which Hurley told Desmond. Did Were there more that I missed? No, that's it. Shockingly, that for, only De one. Shockingly for Desmond episode, very light on the numbers with just the wow. one. Wow. Okay. And no Sawyer nicknames because we have no Sawyer in this episode. So pretty light on that stuff. For music, we have several, or uh, actually three tracks. This uh, The first one's called George of the Concrete Jungle. Love those Giacchino puns. And this George is referring to Minkowski. But this is actually Desmond's sideways theme that you hear it even more intensely towards the end of the episode. I kind of describe this as I'm starting to figure something out music. Like you could imagine the same kind of music playing when Sherlock Holmes is like surveying a crime scene or something. Slightly mischievous, like I know something you don't know type of music. That's what we've got going on here. And so that's Desmond's sideways timeline or sideways uh, theme, which I really love. 
Another one's called None the Nurse, another great pun. This is the MRI scene uh, through Desmond's conversation with Charlie. So covering all the scenes that you said could not possibly happen in a real hospital, in other words, would be this song. Some enticing suspense music that weaves in Desmond's original theme. And then we do have one last appearance here of the uh, fantasy impromptu in C-sharp minor, which has already been used twice on the show. This was played by Daniel in his flashback. Then it was played by David Shepard in The Flash Sideways, and now we hear Daniel playing it again on the piano in this episode. That's become almost like Moonlight Serenade, which is like one of those uh, songs that Lost likes to use over and over again. And no books this time. So that's about all we've got for episode 11. Anything else you wanted to add? No, nah, just a really strong Desmond episode, yeah, as per usual. Sure. You know, watching, and now we're at this point, we've, 11 episodes into the season and I'm definitely sort of reinforced in my, my feeling that the good episodes of season six are far outweighing the bad. If the worst episode you can say we've had so far is the Saeed flash sideways that overall it's a pretty good record with what they're doing with these characters in this last season. Way, way stronger to me than like sort of the up and down of season five where you'd get like one good episode then like what the hell is happening for a couple episodes and then like one good episode and like, oh my God, what what is going on? This feels like it's getting even more of a concrete or a deliberate narrative, you know, the more it goes. So like it feels like it's ramping up, you know? Oh yeah, well they, re- they have no time to waste in this season and yeah. they certainly are not doing that. For sure. So let's get into episode 12. Everybody loves Hugo. Yeah. This- this is, of course, a play off of a, uh, an episode we covered ages ago because it was episode four of season two, Everybody Hates Hugo. Like that episode, this is written by Kitsis and Horowitz. And just as a refresher, Everybody Hates Hugo is the episode where Hurley, uh, against his will, is given the task of distributing fairly the food they found in the hatch in that room to all the other survivors, which makes him a, a, an enemy of the people. He's the one who has to withhold food from certain people and decide who gets what. And yeah. then the flash sideways is where he is. His buddy, Johnny played by DJ Qualls discovered that he won the lottery. Hurley's trying to keep it a secret because he didn't want things to change. But of course things do change. And then later we, uh, in another episode we heard, but did not see that Johnny stole his crush Starla who worked at the record store from him. <laughs> that's a long and sordid history <laughs> it really is but yeah so that's what happened back in everybody hates hugo just as a refresher but here we are day 10 potes as you're a crash this one does have a previously on we've got creepy Said in the water seeing desmond exiting the submarine then apprehending him in the forest after the experiment done on him by charles Woodmore, as you discussed then we see richard telling alana and jack they're going to destroy the ajira plane so the man in black cannot leave the island uh, now we've, I think so far we've always discussed the flash sideways first, or at least, you know, kept it in the order of the episode if it made sense, but here yeah. I'm actually going to do the on Island stuff first. That makes sense. So we'll start with Hurley and his crew. The first thing we see is Hurley giving a fresh flower onto Libby's grave. And he, uh, just kind of catches her up on what's going on and makes the comment that, you know, I've been seeing a lot of dead people lately, but I haven't seen you. And I really would love for you to come visit me. Mm-hmm. So that was a little sad for Hurley, but I can understand why he feels that way. It, that's the kind of thing that you don't think about it until somebody says it out loud. And then I was like, yeah, why hasn't Libby gone to see Hurley? It's true. Yeah. yeah. So Alana comes to get him, tells Hurley they're going to go to the Black Rock to get dynamite to blow up the plane. So that's their plan for now. She leaves after Hurley's telling her about who Libby is. And then we get the reappearance of Michael. Yeah. Would this have been the first time we've seen him since the freighter blew up at the end of season four? Yes, indeed. It has been. It's been so. 
I guess at this point we don't know if he's alive or dead, but we assume he, I at least assumed he was dead. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't cross my mind that he was alive. I guess I bet. I guess about the only thing you could say is that he was kind of wearing like what he was wearing when he was on the freighter rather than what he wore when he was on the island. Sure. Well, I mean, and you know, Jin survived the the explosion of the freighter. So yeah. why not, Michael? Yeah. Well, the way I, I don't know, the way he appears to Hurley definitely feels to me like we're supposed to kind of immediately understand that he's dead because he's like he's hanging around in the cemetery. Not that not that as silly as oh they only hang around the cemeteries but like i think you're in that mindset of like he's right. talking to dead people yeah yeah and so he's telling hurley that he's basically here to stop hurley from getting everybody killed but essentially telling him hey don't go blow up the plane right and this time jack shows up and gets hurley to go with him and as they're back on the uh back on the beach camp alana and them are getting ready to go when hurley's trying to talk alana out of blowing up the plane and she rants on and on about why it's so important to do so She's got her dynamite in her backpack, and as she sets it down, the volatility of the dynamite causes to blow her up into smithereens everywhere. So now they don't have a little yeah. arse on them, but they got a little Alana on them now. Oh, we got I was not expecting this. this death, to be honest with you. I, I was not expecting this death, and I actually will be honest with you. There are definitely a couple things in this episode that are in the negative column for me in season six, and her death is one of them. Uh, you might disagree. You might feel like she was kind of a superfluous character. I mean, what do you think? I definitely think there was more to have explored with Alana. I don't think we got a full scope. I mean, I guess we got enough, but I feel like there was more to explore there with her, with her past and Jacob. Yeah. I'm not saying a full blown Alana episode with the flashback and everything, but I certainly think there was more for her to do here. So it is a little bit of a puzzling choice to have killed her off here. I, I can, I can see why you would not have liked this this choice is, yeah. is that the reason why you didn't like it or is there more to it than that yeah well i see i i uh, regarding what you just said there i'm somebody who is in the camp of i think there should have been a full-blown alana episode i i think if you if you're going to elevate somebody to main cast member that sets up that sets up a certain expectation to me that uh, and and i know that to some extent lost is about defying expectations and surprises and stuff but that's that old thing that we talk about it. The, the difference people talk about the difference between like, you know, a shock, like star Wars episode five and, you know, Luke's parentage versus some of the plot twists in the last Jedi, where they say, or they did uh, defied expectations just for the sake of defying expectations. I feel like they just blew her up because it would be an unexpected thing to do. And that she was sort of a she was sort of superfluous. Like nobody was begging for an Ilana episode because there were so many other characters that were like sort of beloved characters for so long, you know, that we wanted to see what happened with them. But to me, as a writer, that's almost like a challenge. That's like, okay, make me care about this new character that's that was introduced about, you know, a third of the way into season five. So she hasn't been around that long. But, you know, you drop little hints and they sowed the seeds for this with this scene you know, of her in the Russian hospital, I'm not saying they had to have a flashback with her, but that there should have been something more to that character than that we ultimately got. And, and, and that was kind of, that was pretty disappointing to me. I, I, I felt like in some extent I was like, well, then I never, I wish they had never brought her into the show to begin with. Sure. If they weren't going to flesh her out completely, just don't right. bother at all. I can just give that. us a little more there. And, and, and especially because when you read some of the behind the scenes stuff, they did have 
other things in mind for Ilana, like additional, you know, expanded uh, information about her, expanded characterization. And they were just like, well, you know, we just didn't have time. That's and, what, that was my guess was just they realized yeah. we only got so many episodes. We just don't have time to do it here. But, I, but see, that's that's the only time – That's I, that is one time when I get frustrated with – when I listen to Damon and Carlton, you know, on like whether it's the podcast or the interviews they've been in and things like that where they say, oh, this or that thing, but we ran out of time. But like, guys, the whole point of you having – been told by abc you have exactly three seasons you have exactly 48 episodes is so that you can map that out and not quote unquote run out of time like sure like i understand there's going to be need to be a little bit of wiggle room i realize that but i just like I'm, I'm thinking about you know my own experience writing and creating my own stuff and like you you map it out beforehand like here's the story Here's where it starts. Here's where it ends. Here's everything in the middle. You know, you you got people plotting novels that have index cards up on cork boards and stuff like this. And you've got all these shots of uh, the writer's room in L.A. Uh, at, with the lost writers where they've got, uh, you know, all the episodes mapped out on this big dry erase board and things like that. And I'm like, really, you guys couldn't figure out whether or not to bring this new character in like and that she'd get enough screen time for us to actually care about her. So I don't know. That just seems to me a little disappointing. Well, you know what, Ben? Yeah. You didn't say it. I will. We're already at a scarcity of female characters on this show. And we just lost another one. Dude. Okay. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I appreciate that somebody else will say, will jump up and say that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I, I've, I long ago sort of realized that lost was not going to be the bastion of, uh, of, um, feminist empowerment or whatever that that some other shows are but uh it, it does suck to see another female's character sort of get treated like as disposable you know like or like she's the example because you know that scene not to steal any year thunder but a couple scenes later when you know ben says oh the island was done with her you know makes me think about what the island's mm -hmm. gonna do and it's done with me like is that the lesson we're supposed to take away from ilana blowing up is that you know uh, any of us could die at any time because of like just fate or coincidence or whatever. That's, that's just kind of not something that really entices me as a viewer. I want to know that there's a more of a master plan for that. So I feel like that's true for the rest of the characters. It certainly, you know, seems, but uh, to, to, to just take out a character like this, it just seems so arbitrary that well, it, was, and, it was frustrating. And Ben saying that just sort of to me spells out something that I already kind of gathered from the scene a few episodes ago with the dynamite in the Black Rock with Jack and Richard. Yeah. Like, yeah. I didn't, like I didn't need this. I didn't need him to say it to, to yeah. something that I already did. Like some of them have, a, a, for a, a phrase that you use, uh, a, a plot armor, and some of them don't. Ilana had no plot armor left. So, yeah. you know, it's like that. So she's dead. Boom. You know, but. And and because I don't think it was it certainly wasn't played for laughs like it was with Arst. I mean, Arst was a character you only knew for one episode. He was annoying. So when he dies and blows up, everybody kind of thinks it's funny, especially when you throw in a couple of things from Hurley, like, dude, you got some Arst on you and stuff like that. This is played, you know, very different tonally, but it it doesn't land very well because you're either in one of two camps, either you never cared about her in the first place, or you wish there was, you wish there had been more to her. And either way that doesn't get helped by this arbitrary exploding of Ilana. So yeah, I, I didn't like it. 
I'll leave it there. Okay. <laughs> well, so Hurley goes to her campsite and inspects, and he takes the bag of Jacob's ashes with him. So now they're on his person. Yeah. Richard wants to go back to the Black Rock to get more dynamite, but Jack thinks that, well, you know, Alana exploding, that could be a bad omen telling us, hey, don't do that. Uh, but surprisingly, Hurley takes Richard's side and says, we should go back to get more dynamite. And he looks at Jack and says, I'm asking you to trust me. And Jack says, okay, I do. Because part of the thing that Michael was telling him back at Boone Hill was that, hey, you know, you have some influence now. People are starting to trust and believe in you. Yeah. And so Jack is deciding that, okay, I'm going to let Hurley take the leadership reins here. And we get a little more of why that is later. We get the 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 Ben line that you said about the, the island being done with Alana here as they're walking to the Black Rock. They get there and they notice, hey, Hurley isn't with us. And then he comes just bolting out of the Black Rock saying, run, run away. And then the Black Rock explodes. Hurley has set off the dynamite exploding the Black Rock so nobody else could get it. Richard's pissed. Hurley says he did it to protect them. But Richard thinks, oh, we're all screwed. That now that we don't have dynamite <laughs> to blow up the plane, I thought this scene was hilarious. I thought it was too, and it, you know, just you you continue this ramping up of the leadership role for Hurley, not just in the way that that Jack treats him and what Michael said to him, but also this like executive decision that he makes. It's clear within 15 minutes that the reason he suddenly changed his mind and wants to go with Richard is not because he suddenly agrees with Richard, but because he wants to sabotage Richard's plan by blowing up the black rock. Yeah. It's interesting that he had them come there to, to make this happen. I mean, the visual is part of what they're going for, you know, too, of course, having all these characters react to the explosion of, you know, one of the iconic set pieces of the show um, the producers had talked a little bit about it in some interviews and podcasts and stuff about uh, this was to them a very significant landmark of the show when they blew up the Black Rock. It's sort of one of those like, yep, it's definitely the five, the final season, no turning back type of situation because this we've just blown up this iconic part of the the show's uh, you know visual uh, mystique. This, yeah. this uh, ship that's stranded a mile inland, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a really cool visual. Yeah. And her and Miles talks to Hurley about what that was all about. And he says he did it because Michael told him to. And Miles asks, who's Michael? And it made it occurred to me that I guess Miles only knew Michael as Kevin Johnson this entire right. time. Right. And Miles is surprised to hear Hurley say that, uh is surprised to hear this, and he says that, you know, a lot of times there's dead people who come and yell at me. Uh, I don't think Michael was yelling at him, so to speak, but Neither way. What he says yeah. is that dead people are more reliable than alive people to, yeah. to Miles. Um, so what Richard wants to do now is to go back to Dharmaville because he guess he knows they have grenades and some other explosives there. But Hurley says what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to go talk to Locke. And it's all Jacob's idea. And he points to an area that he says, oh, Jacob just told me this. Richard wants proof Jacob is there. And what he asks is for Hurley to ask Jacob what the island is. He says, hey, you know, once upon a time, Jacob told me what the island is. So if he our answers match up. I know you're telling the truth. I feel like the funny part with that is that if if uh, Hurley had said it's a cork, everybody else would have kind of laughed. Yeah, I've been like, what are you talking about? What the hell are you talking about? Richard would like, be cork. like, <gasps> it's a cork. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they do this great visual where Hurley walks over to where Jacob supposedly is, and then turns to Richard and says, "I don't have to prove anything to you." Yeah, I really yeah. like that Hurley stood up for himself. Here. Oh man, the balls on Hurley getting bigger every episode, man. Yeah, and Richard. And Richard says, well, Hurley, you're obviously lying because Jacob never tells anybody what to do, which we have seen differently, both with, with Hurley <laughs> and Alana this season alone, that he's given specific yeah. instructions as to what to yeah. do. Uh, and so Richard convinces Ben and Miles to go with him to Dharmaville, but Jackson and Lapidus all stay by Hurley's side. 
And Richard just says, don't get in our way. And Hurley's, uh, you know, his countenance here gives away that uh, maybe he was being dishonest about talking to Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. And we have another group split here. I don't know. I think the only one I felt I was kind of surprised by was Miles. Miles seems a little more pragmatic. I, it totally made sense to me that Ben and Richard would go off together. They had more history. Mm -hmm. But Miles going off with them was a, was a surprise. I'll have more to say about Miles and my asshole okay. for this episode. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so as there, so now you have the, the Hurley group with Jack and son and Lapidus all walking through the forest. I, I guess I forgot son still can't speak English here. Right. Cause she yeah. writes to Lapidus on a board. Like, did we make a mistake? And he says, probably, probably uh, just, this is the only time they, that Lapidus speaks in the episode. It's great. Everything. Yeah. Well, and it, it's funny too, because like they, he had another opportunity when they were doing the whole thing where, you know, they were saying who's going to go with Richard and who's going to stay with Hurley and just cuts to Frank. And he just kind of shakes his head. Like, no, I'm not like, I'm not a crazy person. I'm not going with you guys. The visual of, of, uh, you know, Frank Lapidus, the stalwart, uh, just kind of shaking his head, I think speaks more than he could have ever said verbally. So this is when, as they're walking, Hurley confesses to Jack, Hey, I didn't really see Jacob back there, but Jack says he already knew. And what he tells Hurley is he said, well, I'm going with you because ever since Juliet died, all I've wanted to try to do is fix it, but I've learned I can't. And it's really hard for me to sit back and listen to other people tell me what to do. But maybe that's the whole point is that I'm supposed to let go. And Hurley says, well, you know, you, you letting us do this and listening to me may get us killed. And Jack says, well, you asked me to trust you, Hurley. This is me trusting you. Yeah. They're really doing a lot here to make me really like Jack in this final season. I got to say they really are. I mean, they, this is, this is Jack's redemptive, redemptive arc. And not only that, but I say even specifically the relationship between the characters of Jack and Hurley, these are two, these two characters have now been together since episode, I mean, kind of almost like together as a pair since episode five, when they went off together to the lighthouse and they've really taken advantage of the opportunity since these two characters are pretty much side by side for this whole season to have a lot of interplay between the two of them in terms of their philosophies and their approaches to these, you know, situations they're dealing with just has really been great writing to me. It served both characters very well because at the same time that you have her, uh, Jack sort of becoming this person who, you know, has more patience and wisdom and the, the, the ability to sort of stop and pause and think before acting rashly, which is, you know, the opposite of old Jack. You also have Hurley being built up more and more as somebody with some maturity and some intuition and somebody who's, you know, more reliable. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it serves both of them very well. I agree completely. I, this is such a great character episode for Hurley and Jack. here. Yeah, absolutely. And then boy, do we get a huge answer here? Yeah, uh, with Island Mysteries. And that is the answer to what are the whispers? Yeah. And that's because Hurley hears the whispers. He goes off on his own. You know, Jack and Lapidus cock their guns upon hearing them, but Hurley's like, wait, 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 wait a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna handle this. And he walks off onto his own and he calls for Michael, who appears. And Hurley figures out Michael is stuck on the island because of what he did, and that he, along with the rest of the whispers, are those who cannot move on. So the whispers, as I as I heard it, are people who came to the island, and this is their sort of purgatory. Yeah, I, I, that, and you know, you have to look more holistically too about all the that the whispers have meant throughout the series because they used to be 
you go back to season one, they were like one of the primary things that people talked about, you know, so, major, major points yeah. since the beginning of the series. Yeah. So that's a, so that's a, that's a big drop that I think it was another one of those ones kind of like the numbers where the writers were like, well, we have to say something about the whispers before the series ends. And I, and I like this answer. What did you think of this? Oh, I'll be honest with you. I'm really, I'm torn about it. If I, if I take it just at face value, like at this episode, I'm okay with the idea of the whispers being the people who are, are stuck on the Island, like for whatever reason, I think the implication, because Michael is sort of standing in front as sort of the rep representative of quote unquote, the ones who can't move on that these would be people who have done something really, really bad, you know, some, something to the extent uh, that, that they don't, uh, like you said, they're almost stuck in sort of a limbo and unable to move on from death. So that, that explanation works within the context of this episode. And I think it's overall, it's a pretty cool scene, you know, that, that Michael being sort of a spirit on the Island now points Hurley in the direction that he needs to go very much like we've seen many of, you know, other visions show up on the Island. You know, when you think about it in the broader perspective of the show, it starts to break down a little bit in terms of how, it might, how much it makes sense because you've had people analyze these whispers and I, and far beyond what I'm sure the producers ever expected or intended them to do, but like parsing out little phrases and stuff like that. And you hear things in the whispers that don't make sense with this explanation, but I, I guess I, I can't really fault the producers for that because, again, I guess when you're making this show for the first time, who who in their right mind thinks that, like, some fan is going to take these whispers and put some, like, high-tech audio equipment to work on it, like parsing out individual voices and, like, reversing and slowing them down and stuff like that to figure out. Like, that that seems like – I don't feel like that's a reasonable expectation to, like – be able to deduce the meaning of the whispers. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And I mean, how many fans do that versus how many fans don't do that? Right. Right. So, so the answer you get in this episode of like what the whispers are, I think it works overall because you, you know, you go back and you hear people, things like, you know, when you hear the whispers run, like the whispers mean danger and things like that. And I think that works too, in the sense that like, if the whispers are people trying to warn the living about danger, then it makes sense. Yeah. It I, fits. That's what I thought too. I just wonder if, is Michael the only whisper, so to speak, that has appeared in it in human form? Like I'd have to go back and see, okay, who has appeared after the whispers have happened. Right. And see right. if, if this is the first time any of them have taken this corporeal form as Michael has. And if so, why hasn't this happened before now? Things like that. Maybe just because Hurley's yeah. able to see the dead, you know? Well, one of my biggest theories about the show that I think contradicts a lot of the sort of conventional wisdom about the show has specifically to do to that. So we will probably need to wait all the way until our wrap-up episode to talk about it. Okay, but, then. But the, but the delivery here was, I think, the only thing I had. It was a little bit clunky. It almost felt a little bit like, okay, I'll tell you what this felt like. When Hurley goes... It's okay. Hold on. I think I know what these things are. And then he walks off and talks to Michael and he's like, you know, he says, you guys are, you know, you're dead. Like the whispers are dead people. And he goes, yeah, we're the ones that can't move on. It was such a perfunctory answer with the dial, the way the dialogue delivered it, that it very much kind of made me feel like this is what it would have been like if they really did just rattle off all the answers in the final season. And so it made me really glad 
that they didn't deliver all of the quote unquote answers that fans, you know, bark so angrily about not getting in, in this manner. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. Like it just seemed it almost like that scene, if that scene could be represented visually by one image, it would be somebody with a big box putting a check mark on it. Yeah. Like that's, and and so, so like I felt like the scene itself was a little bit clunky in its delivery the explanation isn't bad, but it just made me grateful that they didn't do this with all the things people wanted to answer. Oh, to. sure. And you, and I don't think you could have. I think that yeah. would have been terrible. It would have been terrible. But it, but that sounds like what some people wanted. Sure. To hear people talk about the, the people that criticize the end of the show. And that's annoying. Yeah. But either way. <laughs> uh, so, what, so Hurley ends up asking Michael to sh- point him in the direction of Locke. He does. And then he says, if you happen to see Libby Hurley, please tell her I'm very sorry. And that's where we leave. Well, not really leave, but that's where this part of the story ends before you go to our other people on the island. That yeah. Not Locke's crew. Right. Where uh, he's telling Sawyer and Kate, who really having their doubts about what's going on here with this group, uh, but not Locke tells them that they have to get Hugo, Son, and Jack before they can leave the island. I guess he needs to get all the candidates together. And Saeed then reappears at this time and takes not Locke aside to show him Desmond tied up to a tree in the forest, letting him know this is the, the package that was on the submarine. And Desmond's just so chill. He's like, hey, what's up? <laughs> He's so chill that Notlock even cuts him free because Desmond says, I don't need to be apprehended. I don't have anywhere to run to. Right. And he asks Desmond what happened to him. And he tells him, well, I was brought into the island. I was brought into this box. I was blasted with this big thing of electromagnetism. And Notlock asks Desmond, do you know who I am? And Desmond says, of course, you're John Locke. And after hearing this, Notlock shoes Saeed away and tells Desmond that there's somewhere he wants to take him. And uh, as they're walking to this place, they see this little boy again. That was a uh, last scene, I think, when Notlock was with Sawyer. And then Notlock chased him through the jungle. And this is when Richard appeared to try to get him to come to the temple. And Sawyer didn't and stuck with the man in black, Notlock, what have you at the right. time. So same right. little boy there. Uh, they see him again. Desmond sees him too. I think Sawyer was able to see him in that episode as well. Yes. Yeah. Notlock just says, just ignore him. And the little boy smiles and then runs away. <laughs> and then we see Notlock bringing Desmond to a well. Now, their conversation leads me to believe this is a different well than the one with the donkey wheel at the bottom of it. It yes. just happens to be a different well that's on the island because they say yeah. something about there's multiple wells on this island here. Right. Yeah, because well, it, it would have been right near the orchid station if it had been the, same, the other well, right? True. Very point. true. Yeah. Uh, and so Notlock says, you know, this well was dug ages ago by people who want answers and that Charles Whitmore doesn't have any interest in answers, only power. And Notlock is really surprised that Desmond's out here in the forest at nighttime alone with him and he isn't afraid. And Desmond asks, well, what's there to be afraid of? And then Notlock shoves Desmond down the well. Yeah. And, and you get this, this Desmond like, oh. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't hear Desmond give these kind of screams often, but falling down right. this large well, I guess, is a, it was a great <laughs> excuse to do so. Notlock returns back to the camp and not, Sawyer asks where he's been. And this is when Hurley arrives. Yes. And he, and he says he wants... Notlock's word that he won't hurt anybody who's with him. And Notlock actually gives him his knife and says, you have my word. And once he agrees to this, Lapita's son and Jack come into the camp. Kate gives Jack a smile. She's happy to see him again. Son immediately is looking around for Jin. Sad to say, son, he's in another castle, right. so to speak. Every time they move son somewhere, they move Jin somewhere else. I know, right? And it's vice like, versa. What an awful game of human chess for these two to be playing. They just want to be <laughs> together. And Notlock gives uh, a hello, Jack, in this a, a different sort of smile than Kate gave him. Gave him, I would say. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, you know obviously a big setup for 
you know, what's to come, but this is like a big sort of meeting head on that sort of has been building to. And it, and I, I mean, not counting the flash sideways, it's been a really long time since Jack and Locke have been together. Right. I mean, this is not Locke. Sure. But, but it's, it's Terry O'Quinn at least. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny how he goes straight to, to, to Jack, even though that we know that Jack is kind of deferring to Hurley at this point. It, 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 I think it shows some, some, you know, presumption on the part of the man in black. Yeah. What did you make of this, uh, this part of the, the island stuff? Or I guess all the island stuff in general. The island stuff in general. So we talked about a lot of stuff already, but I will say like with Desmond, I feel like the, his reactions to a lot of stuff in this episode are sort of part of what influenced my, what I said earlier about how, where I feel like his head is right now is just like, he knows that no matter what happens, things are going to unfold as they should. And that he's going to be, in the right place at the right time to fulfill whatever purpose he's meant to. So, which is why he's like completely blase about being tied up to a tree. You know, he's completely, you know, he's like, I don't have anywhere to be. It's, it's he's saying that because he knows that, you know, when destiny calls him to be in the right place at the right time, he's going to be there. Like that's kind of where his head's at right now. I think this all reinforced that too. When I watch these episodes, Whereas like with the man in black, I feel like he doesn't know as much as like, he's got a specific goal in mind, but I don't think he's as rock solid on how he's going to accomplish it as he likes to pretend to be when he's talking to the people that are, that are with him. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what to do with Desmond. I feel like that's the reason he threw him in the well is because he didn't want to kill him, but he also didn't want to, like, he didn't want to outright kill him but he also didn't want to give him complete autonomy. You know, yeah, like he had to get him to, out of the way still. He wanted to be like, okay, I know where I'm keeping this thing until I need it, you know, or, or until I don't need it, you know, that, or until I know more what's going on. So, cause like, I don't think his intention was to kill Desmond, but just to put him somewhere that he couldn't, he couldn't escape. So, I mean, it, I, I thought that was good. Yeah. I guess that's all I have to say about this part of it. We talked, we talked pretty extensively about Hurley and that was the, the, the bigger part of the Island arc. Yeah. That's why kind of, I feel like it was easy to kind of rush through the Desmond stuff, but but I do like that the way he handled Desmond was not like this magical mystery way of like, you know, like Emperor Palpatine shooting lightning into him or something. It was just yeah. shoving him down a well. Yeah. Well, that's what a lost usually tends to do more often than not is rather than go with like the magical or mystical to just have more practical things. I did like the existence of another well, because I think it, it speaks to, Every time you get sort of a glimpse of some of these more ancient things, it percolates your mind on how much has been going on under the surface of this island for thousands of years now, you know, like how much has come and gone over the over the centuries. And the idea that people people have stayed basically the same. Like when he talks about how, you know, people stood here and saw their compasses, you know, twirling around in circles and they had to know why. It's that same curiosity that inspired the Dharma initiative to start making huge stations and drilling way down into the dirt just in a different century, you know? So it's like human nature stays pretty much the same. And when people are confronted with these mysteries of this Island, their reactions usually the same. Like they want to, like some people are curious, some people want to know how they can exploit it, but all that stuff's pretty consistent, you know? And, and I think that that scene highlights that. For sure. I agree with you. So let's get into our flash sideways for this episode. Naturally about Hurley. I mean, it's in the title of darn episode. Yep. We actually start the episode as a whole with a very familiar voice over a video. 
And this is another man that we got to know through a lot of videos yes. back in the day. So that's very appropriate. That is appropriate. And it is talking about the life of Hugo Reyes, who is an entrepreneur of Mr. Cluck's Chicken Shack, but also an unparalleled philanthropist, showing this video slideshow of all these wonderful things he's done. And then we see this voice, of course, belongs to Mr. Pierre Chang, who is uh, there's at this gala, this event. And this event is to honor the opening of the Hugo Reyes Paleontology Wing at the Golden State Natural History Museum to honor one of the city's greatest benefactors. And then he introduces Hugo as the man of the year, and he gets the standing ovation at his table. And he's uh, with his mother and his brother at the table. Yeah. And, and, and you know, immediately we, we pick right back up where we left off in the premiere episode of this season where Hurley says, you know, nothing bad ever happens to me. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Right. And we're seeing it here and everybody does love Hugo here. Well, not everybody because his <laughs> mom tells him that you still need to find a woman. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is, this is so many mothers, right? You need to find an honest woman to, to make a man out of yourself. Well, I totally buy that with his mom though. hundred like, percent. Knowing her character over the seasons. It's like that, that he could be, this sort of philanthropist who has improved the lives of millions and millions of people and accomplished just incredible things. And still she doesn't, she still looks at him with disapproval because he doesn't have a woman. I know. Right. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. It's no sad, but there are definitely people out there like, <laughs> Oh, that. Oh, for sure. It's not enough for him to be this, incredible businessman and philanthropist and to have a friggin' wing out of a museum named after him. Oh right. no. Got to find right. yourself a wife. The one thing that he does love though is chicken because I love, there's a particular line in Dr. <laughs> Chang's speech where he says something like uh, he worked at, at Mr. Clucks, which began his lifelong love affair with chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I, just thought, I love chicken too. I heard that. And I saw a couple of scenes in here where he's like eating, you know, at Mr. Clucks and I'm like, yeah, I really want some chicken now. Me like, too. <laughs> me too. I'm sure there was plenty of lost like season finale parties where people brought, you know, a bucket of fried chicken there sure. to celebrate because, you know, that's yeah. what you do. Yeah. So his mother has set him up on this blind date with this woman named Rosalina. And the next day he's at a lunch date at this Mexican restaurant and Libby appears at his table and Hurley confuses her for his date. And she's not his date. You, you, He basically gets stood up by Rosalina, unfortunately. Yeah. They don't outright yeah. say that, but that's what you get here. And she asks Hurley if he believes in soulmates and realizes that Hurley does not know who she is. And then suddenly uh, the doctor, Dr. Brooks, Dr. Brooks, yeah. Dr. Brooks comes in and takes her away. But Hurley is clearly very intrigued by what yeah. she is telling him until he sees that she's being put into a Santa Rosa mental health Institute van. <laughs> and then he, and then you see his face make it seem like he feels like an idiot. Well, the way I, I kind of feel about it, though, too, and like he's pursuing, continuing to pursue her throughout this episode is that if you're a single guy and there's an attractive blonde woman who's telling you they were meant to be together, yes. a little hurdle like her being in a mental institution, you might be able to overlook that. Right. And well, Hurley has a, a, his way of dealing with this sort of pain is through food. And so he goes to a Mr. Clucks and gets a family sized bucket of chicken to eat himself. Oh. Uh, and the uh, the man behind the register, I recognized him right away. This is Sam Levine, an actor who I loved in Freaks and Geeks, and he was in Inglorious Bastards too. Did you recognize him? No, I did not. 
yeah, he's uh, I don't know what roles he does these days, but I recognized him from those shows. And I, I love Freaks and Geeks, love Inglorious Bastards. So fun to see him here in a cameo as just a Mr. Cluck's employee. I saw Inglorious Bastards, but I think only once. And I and I have not seen Freaks and Geeks. So he's definitely more in your uh, in your universe than mine. So, yeah, so he's eating his family sized bucket of chicken when he notices this guy eyeing him at the counter and says, like, what? And so it's Desmond. He comes over to talk to him, uh, recognizing Hurley from the flight. Hurley's kind of regaling his sad story about meeting Libby at lunch and how she was great, except for, oops, she's crazy because she thinks she knows me. We've never met. Uh, but Desmond says that, hey, you know, how, what, how did you feel when she said that? Did you believe her that she that she knew you? And he said he did. So Desmond says, you should follow your gut and track her down to see, find out where she thinks that they knew each other from. So now what I'm taking away from this is that after the last episode with Desmond, he's trying to guide yeah. these other flight uh, the other Oceanic 815 people into seeing these visions too. Yeah, that was my first question when this scene started, when I was watching it the first time, and it becomes very obvious this is this is post-enlightenment Desmond. And 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 so you you now in, in this episode, uh, you're gonna become more familiar with post-enlightenment Desmond, you know, because this is the immediate follow-up of I want to show them something. And and what that means and how he plans to achieve that. Right. And in some more extreme measures than others. Right. Well, Hurley goes to the, the Santa Rosa Mental Institute to talk to Dr. Brooks to try to see Libby. And he ends up making a, a generous donation, 100K, to go and see her. And he's sitting in the same room that we've seen before, like the inmates rec room, essentially. Yeah. You see one of the inmates is playing Connect Four, but it is not the same guy who was playing Connect Four before. Just somebody different. Uh, Lenny. I think it was Lenny, wasn't it? Yeah, Leonard, Leonard or Lenny, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Uh, and then Libby comes in and she tells Hurley that saw a commercial with him in it. And that caused her to see memories of a different life. One where there was a plane crash, an island and memories of uh, Hurley and her being together on the island. But also that he was in the mental hospital, too. And Hurley's like, well, that's insane. I've never been to one of these before. Right. He doesn't say insane. That would have been insensitive. Uh, <laughs> and Hurley says, you know, I really wish I could remember this stuff, but I can't. And then he asks her out on a date because he learns that she's in the hospital voluntarily. So she's able to leave on her own accord. And she says she would love that. Uh, and I really like this because Hurley ends up taking her on a beach picnic. And Libby says, you know, she, she seems like she's like, I'm sorry, I'm feeling spacey. You know, I, this feels familiar. Like it's a date we never had. Right. And I like that phrasing specifically. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's it a little on the nose. Like everybody who knows the show knows exactly what's going on here. So that line is kind of a little bit like, yeah, okay, we get it. But, but the, but the scene itself is, I think really nice. Like if you, if you just take the scene at face value, it is something that I think any lost fan is, you know, it, it makes them, it makes them happy to see it, you know? Yeah. Because of course it does. Yeah. Well, and after this whole, why do you even like me conversation that they have, uh, Libby kisses Hurley and that triggers him to get visions of their past on the island. Right. And so Hurley tells her that he saw this and he says, I don't think you're crazy. I think there might be something to this. And creepy Desmond is watching from his vehicle off in the distance. <laughs> now I get it. We've had a lot of these things that you and I feel like may be cre creepy in a different context and we understand, but just on their own doesn't look great. And that's not the yeah. last one of this episode. Either. I was going to say, that's not the creepiest that Desmond gets. No. In this episode. <laughs> uh, so he drives away. And I guess his next stop after this is he goes to the school, the high school that Locke is a substitute teacher at. And he's watching Locke wheel himself to his car when Ben Linus knocks on his door 
suspecting him of being up to no good. And Desmond covers us up with a story of, oh, I got a kid who might be going here. I just want to check it out. I, what I like here is Ben's like, what's your son's name? And he quickly says, Charlie. Yeah. Uh, and well, obviously, I'm sure that's a name that's popped up because that name is fresh to him because of Charlie Pace. But that is the name of his son in real life. Yeah. And, and lost anyways. Ben lets him go. And then Desmond barrels down lock with his car hitting him lock, you know, flies over the car. His wheelchair goes, Hey, you know where, who knows where and speeds off and lock is left laying scraped a little bit of blood on the side of his face as Ben and students, of course, crowding around him asking if he's okay and getting nine one one to call. And the episode ends with just us zooming in onto Locke's face as he's laying on the asphalt with blood on the side of it. And that's where we, the episode is uh, concluded. And he looks remarkably like Locke when, I mean, I know it's basically, you're just talking about two shots that are both of Terry O'Quinn from, you know, a crane cam hanging down, but he looks a lot like the way he uh, uh, looked when he fell out of the, uh, the building, sure. um, you know, in, in, in uh, man from Tallahassee, but, or I guess actually not even man from Tallahassee. It would have been the scene when Jacob walks up to him um in last season finale right so i think a lot of you know taking this as it is you're like what the hell desmond but i think i mean what i got this to believe is this is the way he's trying to trigger the memories of the island for Locke. sure and you know taking different approaches to different characters here that has we've we've seen that before this actually was somebody had sort of compared desmond to jacob a little bit back when this was airing in the sense that like He's trying to push people in a certain direction, but you know, we've had this conversation before. I talked about some people need direction in different ways. Some, some people need something more blunt and direct, and some people just need a little nudge in the right direction to figure out where they're going. And that's exactly what Desmond's doing. He's with Hurley. All he needed to do was suggest that he follow up with this woman. Uh, and whereas with uh, Locke, he had to smash into his wheelchair. So, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. It is. It's kind of ironic seeing uh, Ben Linus being the person calling out someone else for acting creepy. Right. Um. So that's kind of a nice little touch. I like that. I didn't mean to sound too harsh on the picnic scene either. I think it's great that really what this is with this episode is that finally getting a little more Cynthia Watros on the show is a great opportunity because her role was cut short not once, but twice in case uh, anybody's listening who didn't uh, hadn't been listening in season two, she was killed off on the show because the producers felt that just the death of Anna Lucia would not be enough to really uh, make people feel the sense of betrayal by Michael that they wanted for the audience to feel because Anna Lucia was such a hated character that there were just as many people saying, thank God she's dead which I don't agree with, but, uh, but there were a lot of people that felt that way. So they, the decision to kill Libby was a, was a result of that. So there was more impact of the betrayal. And then she was slated to come back and be at least a little bit more significant role, whether it was in a flashback or a vision or something in season four, when Michael returned to the show, but she actually only got one scene where she shows up, I guess two scenes where she shows up, in a couple of Michael's visions and that uh, some of the background with that and some of the, the material she might've appeared in was cut short because of the writer's strike. So you combine that with the fact that she never really, we never really got a chance to get a firm answer for the, why is she in a mental Institute thing from season two? And it's a character that I feel like we definitely, a lot of people felt we didn't get a, a fair, a fair shake at, you know what I mean? 
And I wonder if Desmond, when he saw Libby flashback to the coffee shop in the airport where she gave him her boat. Must have, uh, maybe because that was the only time they met. So if he knew her at all from the island timeline, that would have been when. Because he didn't see her on the island itself. So thoughts on the episode overall, I guess. Uh, good episode. I, I, I mean, Hurley episodes are always enjoyable. I don't think there's been a dud of a Hurley episode. Uh, this one, I think, shows some good character evolution on the island. We talked about that. And then this idea that the Flash sideways narrative is starting to sort of move full speed in a specific direction towards some kind of resolution, as we're, we know that now we only have, what, five episodes left? Yeah. So <laughs> crazy to think. Yeah. And uh, I, I, and of course, stands the reason we both really love, I think, seeing Harold Paranormal and Cynthia Watros again. Sure. Under expect roles. Sure. Only other note I have is that uh, Lost PD pointed out that Richard is not wearing Elizabeth's cross in this episode. Oh, interesting. Don't know if that was just like, uh, oops, we forgot to have him wear it or something more meaningful, but uh, yeah. I felt it was noteworthy. Do you have anything you want to point out? Yeah, the only the only other thing I felt I kind of missed seeing in this episode, I was kind of disappointed that Cheech Marin wasn't in it as uh, Hurley's father. I thought the same. Probably would have been the chance to, for his character to have a send off, but uh, I, I have a feeling that well, I guess there's probably two explanations if I had to take guesses. One would be either just they did sort of have to start. I'm sure at some point they started having to make some decisions on who to have back and who not to because of budgetary reasons. Because we just started talking, we just were talking about how, you know, this this surely cost them a lot of money to bring bring some of these higher profile people back. You know, Dominic Monaghan being you know a film actor as well as it couldn't have been cheap to get him for just a, a you know even just a handful of episodes since he was no longer a regular on the show, and and they've had so many characters come back: Harold Perrineau, Cynthia Watros. You know, go back in previous episodes of Jeremy Davies and you know, and so on. Um, at some point, they probably just had to start making some tough decisions that like, we just literally don't have the mm -hmm. budget to bring back every single character who's ever been on the show. But it is kind of a shame that he didn't get one more chance to put in an appearance. From a logical standpoint, wouldn't his father be at a, at the ceremony where a wing of a museum was named after him? Like what, right. what was on his agenda, his calendar that he couldn't bother to make the time? Well, or maybe since it's the sideways universe, if we want to headcanon a little bit, maybe we can say that in the in the island timeline, his father started out as a dick and became a decent guy. Maybe his uh, his flash sideways father started out as a decent guy and kind of became a dick. Who knows? Fair enough. <laughs> to me, it's a noticeable omission that he's not there. But I think there's these, you know, there's also the good old. Uh, you know, clash of schedules or whatever. So there's any number of reasons that he might not have been there, but it, it was a little bit of a bummer. Yeah, definitely a notice, uh, a noticeable omission of characters. Yeah. But having Cynthia Watros back was just, and, and even Harold Perrineau for, for just a couple of brief scenes uh, was really great. Uh, I feel like there was always some resolution to Cynthia Watros's character on the show that we were denied. And, you know, even though it's in a different timeline, I feel like having her here now uh, was was cathartic in a way to to see that sort of that come to some fruition. That relationship with Hurley was really nice. So what was your quote of the episode? My quote, uh, you said it very briefly, was Hurley saying dead people are more reliable than alive people. Just coming from him, I thought it was kind of funny. Also, the scene where Desmond, they're in Mr. Cluck's. And uh, just the character interaction where uh, Desmond sits down and he goes, 
Ooh, that is a lot of chicken. And Hurley <laughs> says, I eat when I'm depressed. What about you? I had the whole line of Jack explaining why he was following Hurley when he says, ever since Juliet died, ever since I got her killed, all I've wanted was to fix it, but I can't. I can't ever fix it. You've no idea how hard it is for me to sit back and listen to other people tell me what I should do. <laughs> but I think maybe that's the point. Maybe I'm supposed to let go. Yeah. It's a damn good quote. How about your scene of the episode? Hurley blowing up the black, the black rock. <laughs> a good choice. I said it was him figuring out the mystery of the whisper. So that was a very good, like smart moment of Hurley in the episode. Uh, as much as we have our, you know, our, our yeah. maybe your criticism of it. I like that Hurley was the one to figure it out. I, I can appreciate that while still not loving the delivery of it. So I, I, I hear you. Uh, it, it certainly, it's one of any number of things in this episode that contributes to Hurley's emergence as a, as someone other than just sort of a supporting character that he's kind of become a real, a real uh, reliable protagonist at this point. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to take uh, asshole idiot first here. Go for it. Because I'm glad you pointed out miles going with Richard and Ben being a surprise instead of going with Hurley in the group. Okay. I'll go one step further and says, I don't think it makes any damn sense that miles would go with, with Richard and Ben instead of the yeah. other group. Okay. Uh, first of all, the people that he is most closely associated with are on Hurley's side. And not to mention, he also speaks to dead people. Or not speaks to them, but you know what I mean? He hears the thoughts of dead right. people. Yeah. It stands to reason he would have a little empathy and understanding of Hurley when he says what he's saying about how he's following Jacob here. Yeah. To me, there is no logic in him going with, with Ben and Richard whatsoever, personally. And so My I made I made him the, the, the asshole idiot, although I think it was just a weird writing decision after all. Yeah. Maybe they felt like just just Ben and Richard going off on their own was not – they didn't want to split the group like that. They wanted at least one more person to go with them. I don't know. They, if, you, if, if, if I'm trying to defend it from a writing stance, I'm not actually – not defend it, but sort of explain it because I you're right. I, I think Miles, for consistency of character, would have probably stayed with Jack and Hurley and Lapidus. If I were forced in a debate class to defend the idea of Miles going with – Ben and Richard, I would say that Miles is at bottom, he's a pragmatist. He he is a very sort of nuts and bolts kind of guy in terms of wanting to just get done what needs to get done to kind of save his own skin. And so he might be feeling that, you know, making sure that the man in black can't leave the island is like sort of the most logical. Like, like how do you make sure that that happens? Well, you blow up his only way off the island. Like that just kind of makes some rock solid sense to him as opposed to Hurley's idea, which is like, Oh, we're going to go talk to him and see what happens. It's like a little more nebulous for a guy like miles that would want concrete uh, motivations, but that's a bit of a stretch. I'm only saying that completely a devil's advocate. I think for the most part, I'm, I'm right there with you and saying that probably would have stayed with Jack and Hurley. But who was your asshole idiot? My asshole idiot was Richard because it's a little weird to me that he has been on the drumbeat of blowing up the, playing for like three straight episodes now, at least three straight episodes, something like that. I would have thought he would be the kind of guy who would listen to what the island might be telling him. So, I mean, somebody even says that, don't they? Doesn't somebody, or, or that was, yeah, that was like when, when Ilana blows up, doesn't Hurley say, or somebody says, maybe, you know, this is telling us that we're, this isn't what we're supposed to be. Yeah. Doing. It was Jack who told him that. Okay. It was Jack. Okay. So yeah, as soon as he says that, I'm like, yeah, that maybe that is the, exactly the kind of thing that I would have thought Richard would listen to. And and the, you go back to uh, the scene where he was sitting down at the, with the dynamite with Jack, and that convinced him to stop trying to kill himself and at least come back with the others. And like, I mean, he's, 
admittedly he's going back and forth with like this sort of crisis of faith ever since Jacob died, but I don't feel like that would completely throw out the window for him. Like this idea of sort of listening to what the Island might be trying to tell him or sort of trying to pick up on those cues. And he seems so hell bent on blowing up the plane. Like even after Alana blows up, maybe should we, we should not blow up the plane. Oh no, no, no. We're still going to do it. Then Hurley blows up the black rock. You know, oh, maybe we shouldn't blow it, uh, blow up the plane. No, 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 we're still going to do it. Now we're going to go get, like, grenades from the barracks <laughs> to do it. Like, he's so damn intent on doing it that way. It just seems like at some point... And then, you know, onto all that, you've got to throw on this... Like, to me, there was a an establishment of relationship with Hurley that never got really paid off because Hurley was the one who followed Richard into the jungle when jun- when when Richard was about to give himself over to the man in black... And Hurley was able to convince him not to do that by saying like, hey, your wife's right here. And like being able to communicate with her, that sort of turned him around. And then Hurley even says, you've got to stop the man in black or todos vamos al inferno. And he doesn't then listen to Hurley in this episode. Seems like a little contradictory or like completely disregards his opinion. At least you would think he would consider what Hurley had to say. You see what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. So I gave it to Richard. Fair enough. <laughs> Either two people in the same group. Yeah. Not not yeah. a good sign. Basically, we're thinking these people are dumb for going off to get grenades. Yeah, there should not have been a split here, I don't think. Right. Idiots. Right. <laughs> uh, so numbers, I got I got three. One is that Alana retrieved four sticks of dynamite from the Black Rock. Ah. Uh, the other one is that Desmond's order at Mr. Cluck's was the number 42. That was a pretty yeah. obvious one. I'm sure yeah, you caught that. that. One. Yeah. And then Desmond had a few different cars here, but the, the license plate had uh, started and ended with the four, the car that he drove from uh, once he left uh, the beach, I believe, once he left Hurley and Libby. And that was the only numbers I got. Okay. And uh, no nicknames from nobody at all. And that's right. so that's just books and music. For music, we got uh, three tracks on the Season 6 soundtrack. My favorite of these was the last one, which is called A Memorable Kiss. Starts with Hurley kissing Libby, seeing some visions, and then it bleeds into Desmond's theme, which is that sort of mysterious like theme that I, his sideways theme that I talked about last time. And I really like it because to me it kind of becomes the theme of like the whole flash sideways as this as this mystery starts to unravel. Um, so I like that track. That's my uh, standout track for this trio for books really briefly Hurley is, I think he's looking through Ilana's stuff after she dies and sees a Russian language copy of a book that's called notes from underground. It is by Dostoevsky Lostpedia here says it deals with the conditions of existence of the individual and their emotions, actions, and responsibilities principally attempting to validate free will as opposed to determinism, which of course is a big theme and lost so season six and they're still throwing these nods in there to philosophical books that deal directly with the same themes as the show pretty cool and that's what i've got for music and books well as we inch closer to the end of the show we definitely want to encourage people to leave feedback on what we are saying especially with some of the stuff like do you agree with us on alana do you agree about these groups splitting up being a bad idea you could do that on twitter the whispers, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, I'd be curious to see are there any is if there's anybody who's sort of been a long time or was a long time viewer of the show that had a different feeling about the whispers because that was a that was a pretty big drop for this episode for something that had been part of the show for so long. 
Definitely. You can let us know a few ways. One, you can comment on the episode page itself at enterTheRealWorld.com. You can tweet at us at LostPod or do like Daniel did and send us an email at LostPodQuestions at gmail.com, especially for longer form stuff. Any way you want to get to us, we'd love to take it. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at KFord13. But in the meantime, we've only got a few episodes left here of Lost, which is a little bittersweet. But we're still going to be back next week here on From Broadcast Depth. We'll see you then.